this is, so sermon time. Is that a good transition? I'm going to do sermon now. Uh, story, intro story. Okay, so I'm playing volleyball, and um, I love volleyball so much. Like, I wake up at 5.30, I commute out from 6 to 7 to Huntington Beach. So this is, I think, on a Tuesday. And I played at the court right next to the court you're looking at. And, um, and we have, I have some really good players I'm playing with now. But, but after I was done playing, I looked over, and my friends were saying, dude, those are pros. And I was like, I, I kind of knew they were pros, but I only follow a few pros. And, and then I looked at uh, the guy setting up the block, housing the other guy, and I was like, oh, my gosh, that's Dollhauser. Dollhauser is like a legendary beach volleyball player, maybe the best in the world. He won in the, uh, in the Beijing Olympics, and uh, he's still playing. He's like really amazing. He can jump so high that his shoulder blades are over the net, so he's blocking like straight across the net, right? And then the guy on his team, that's uh, one of the Crab Brothers. They, they were a pro team together, but there was like drama, and so they split up. It's very exciting. And so I'm watching them play, and then like one of our balls will like roll into their court, and I get super excited to be like, I will get that, you know? And I'm like picking it up, and like, will you sign this? Will you give me a high five, you know? And uh, can I set for you? I set really well. And then what I realized even later was that while they were warming up and stretching, they were watching us play. Like, they were watching me play a two-on-two game. It would be like Michael Jordan watching you play basketball or, or, you know, Tiger Woods watching you play golf. I mean, like, my hero in volleyball watched me play. So anyways, I just wanted to share that. It it doesn't have a lot to do with my sermon. Um... (laughs) Here are things that I'm working on when it comes to volleyball. Um, and, and so I have a list of things that I need to improve in, but these are like my focal areas, okay? Things that I know I'm supposed to do, but I'm not executing yet. So for spiking, there's the three-step approach, right? You step, step again, and then you close up, and then you come up, and then you send your left arm in the air and your right arm at the same time. And your left arm is to aim. You bring it back down, you rotate your body, Then when you hit, you hit the top of the ball, like where the 12 o'clock marker is, you break your wrist and you come all the way down. That's a a really good spike. What I end up doing, though, is someone serves, and then I have this mental breakdown where I'm like, oh, man, that's a great pass. Oh, shoot, he sent me. I start running over, right? And I, like, jump really awkward. Sometimes I'm like this. And I start hitting the ball at the top of the thing. I hit it on the bottom, and it flies out of the court. And then I do all these things where it's like I know what I'm supposed to do, but I don't do it. And I have to keep reminding myself that like when I set, like when someone passes to me and I love setting, I love like these perfect sets where they don't flow. It's the perfect high. It lands right when they're going to hit. And when I set it, I just think, and I have a great set. I'm like, oh my gosh, that was a great set. That was like the best set I've ever seen. I wonder if Dollhauser saw that set, you know? And then and then instead of running back on defense in case they won ball, I just watch my set, then I watch Johnny sp- spike it, and then someone just like tosses it over, and we're both at the net, and then I lose the point because I'm supposed to go back on defense. And so I think about how there's this distance between the brain, what we know, and the heart, what we embody and who we are. 
And that's one of the largest differences between me and Dahlhauser, right? We both know similar information. He, I'm sure he knows way more. But even in the information that we both understand, he has executed it to perfection. And I still have it just as like an informational phrase on my reminders in my phone. I still haven't been able to embody the knowledge that I have. And I wonder if that can be true of us in our spiritual life. We're going to be residing in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 through 3. We're doing two more sessions on kind of spiritual formation, and then we're moving into the book of Matthew. We'll probably be there for over a year, just kind of walking through that uh, gospel together. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 through 3, it says, We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. What I want to focus on is that uh, bolded, underlined phrase that there's two ways of knowing. And Paul's saying that the way you know isn't the way you ought to know. That you can know something and not really know it. Like I know conceptually how to do a three-step perfect spike, but I rarely do it. Right? And so in the same way in our faith, there's so much that we know in our head, especially those of us who have been Christians for a while. We know a lot. We read through the Bible a few times. We've been to a, thousands of sermons. We, we, we listen to even more podcasts. And yet, do we recognize that just because we know something doesn't mean it's part of who we actually are? When I think about knowing in Scripture, there's a few layers to it, Right? Like Jesus says, don't just be knowers of the word, but be doers. Don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers. And so there's knowing intellectually, and then there's knowing enough so that we're taking action. But then I also think about how it says in John chapter 1 that the word was God. That not only did Jesus know the word and did the word perfectly, but he was the word. That It was who he is. And so when he did things, it wasn't out of effort. It wasn't uh, out of force. But it was like he was always in the posture of loving someone. And then the opportunity came, and of course he's going to love. Right? He's always in the posture of service. And so when the opportunities to come to serve, he just served. Because it's who he embodied. This truth was who he was. And I wonder if we recognize that just because we know something doesn't mean that we do it or that it's transformed our very being, that we embody it. So let me give you an example. I'm a child of God. I've heard that a, a thousand times. And actually, I say that to myself, right? So every day, I open my phone, and I do this kind of self-inventory. But before I do that, I read a few phrases. The first phrase says, I'm a child of God. And I know it, and you know it, and you've heard it, and I know it too. But what does it mean to really know it? Do we need to hear it again? Do we need another sermon on it if we know it already? I think, I think if I really knew it, if it went all the way down from my head to my heart, which they say is the, you know, the greatest distance in the world is from your head to your heart, right? If I really knew that I was a child of God, I, wouldn't, I would never care if someone slandered me, right? Because I'm his kid. I would never want another accolade or title or praise 
Because what does any title mean in comparison to being a child of God? Like, who cares? And I would not want, like, I would not be a people pleaser. But I still people please. I still hold on to my titles. And I still get upset when people speak poorly of me. And so there's a disconnect between what I know and the depth of how it can and should form me. And I feel like, and I wonder what are some disconnects between what you know and who you are. That when you look at your faith, when you look at things you've heard a hundred times, are you able to identify that disconnect? Are you able to see it uh, deeply and thoughtfully? Or do you believe that because you know something, you are it, and you don't need to hear it again. And I think that's what 1 Corinthians uh, refers to when it says knowledge puffs up, right? That if we just have knowledge on its own without introspection, if we have knowledge on its own disconnected from loving God more and loving others more, it just makes us more prideful. It puffs us up. When we think about, when we believe that everything we know defines who we are, we have this like manic and overrated spirituality. When we believe that everything we sing, just because we sing it passionately with our arms up, is true of our very souls, we probably have a manic and overrated spirituality. Knowledge puffs us up means that it makes us prideful. And in that pride, we have this false sense of self and spirituality. We have an inflated view of ourselves. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 27, Paul, um, Jesus speaks about this to the Pharisees, which really embodies this concept of thinking that because we know something, we are something, with no self-reflection of that disconnect. He says, you are whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you're clean, you're hygienic, you're sterile, but in the inside, you're rotting away. There's bacteria and virus everywhere. You're rotting flesh. When we have this inflated view of ourselves, we can present ourselves as great Christians. Everyone can believe that of us. We could hold on, we could excel in the church popularity ladder. But in our very souls, we are just rotting away. I think one of the markers of this, or one of the, the um, symptoms of this, is that we become unte- unteachable. Right? If, if you say, man, I've, I've read the whole Bible. I don't need to read it again. Everything you say on Sunday, I've heard before. It's not a big deal. Um, I have nothing to learn here. What you're really saying is, because I, I know it, I, I, I am it. And I, I don't think that's true. But if you think that's true, it's going to be really hard for you to learn. And I, I'm, I'm like surprised at the Pharisees' pride because their pride, when Jesus speaks over it, he says, you have eyes, but you do not see. You have ears, but you, you don't hear, right? And, and Nina has said that to me before. She asked me to look for something, and, and then it's right in front of me. I'm like, I can't find it. I get frustrated. She's like, you have no eyes. Open your eyes, you know? And that's what Jesus is saying. Like, you're standing right in front of me before the God of the universe, 
and you're searching for Messiah. Crazy, right? Like, like the Pharisees spent all their time in Scripture trying to study prophecies for who the Messiah would be. Jesus standing right in front of them, and they're like, oh, he's a demon. Isn't that a crazy amount of pride? That pride can blind someone so much that they would see the face of God and call it a demon. Or they're hearing the very words of God. The very words of God. Jesus, who spoke the universe into being, he was the words that came out of the Father's mouth to enact the universe, is speaking to the Pharisees, and they, they call it blasphemy. And I wonder if when we open Scripture, it's just another book. It doesn't have anything to do with cutting into our soul. I wonder when we come on Sunday, if we're like, I've heard that sermon. And it doesn't have anything to do with conviction. Our pride makes us blind and deaf to the point where even Jesus couldn't penetrate. That is scary. I think if there's one sin that's, that frightens me the most about our church, it's spiritual pride. And it's so easy to go there when we grow from a baby Christian to like this adolescent Christian. Man, I know a lot. And therefore, I'm good. I've been there. I remember those days. I picked up some theology books. I read through systematic theology. And then I come to church. I'm like, I've heard that. I've heard that. I've heard, I read that verse. There's just this pride. And then I think we grow up again, hopefully. This pride allows us to not be self-reflective. So instead of looking inward when we hear something uh, convicting, when we look at God's word, what do we do? We look outward. And we're like, man, that sermon would have, man, Alex really needs to hear that sermon. Like, <laughs> right? Or like, man, I just, if you heard my last little spew and you're thinking of someone else in the room or someone who's not here, that's probably your pride speaking. That we're not willing to go deep enough into our soul and say, hey, this is for me too. There is a disconnect in me as well. And then, of course, the Pharisees were marked by their judgment. Judgment looks down on others. Pride puffs us up so that we're okay, we're not self-reflected, we think that we have embodied all the truth that we know in our heads, and then we start looking down. And so when you know you're prideful, when you start ranking your spirituality with everyone else, and it becomes a, like a Candy Crush ladder board, right? You know you're prideful when you judge other people, because you, that means you're the judge. That means you're the arbitrator of who's spiritual and who's not. And guess what? You're not the judge. There's only one judge. His name's Jesus. There's a disconnect between our head and our heart. And so sometimes um, in that disconnect, which feels extremely uncomfortable, we don't know how to live in that tension, so we reside here in the head. And we say, everything I know I am. And we become prideful. But, but then there's this kind of heart space. The heart is not your emotions primarily. It includes that. It's not your physical heart. Your heart is the reality of who you are. And some, sometimes we are disconnected with the reality of who we are. But it's the reality of who we are. And so 
a lot of Christians, they reside in this inflated self, and then a trial comes. Things don't go our way anymore. We get punched in the face by sin. Or we prayed for something and God said no. And we realize that, man, everything I thought I knew, now there's fractures. And the reality of my heart is starting to peek through. When I sin, the reality of my heart starts coming out. When I lose my temper, and even though I know that, you know, I shouldn't get angry for myself, right, Uh, or for bad reasons, the reality of my heart starts coming through. And then we can start allowing ourselves to go into like a depressive or condemning spirituality, where everything we know in our hearts, in our heads, about theology, about God, about ethics, starts to condemn our soul. And we start to say, man, I'm a terrible Christian. Look at all the rules that I'm not following. Look at all the sermons I'm not obeying. That's a crappy place to be as well. And um, when we feel, we start to be defined by that disconnect. And I see people just kind of give up on their faith, right? And I've wanted to as well. I've, I just feel so ashamed by my sin. I'm like, why am I, why am I even a pastor? I need to hand in my resignation, you know? Or, or I need to get someone else to preach on Sunday. Or maybe I should just pursue my sin because I can't get rid of it anyways. Have you ever felt, especially when you have that inflated view of self and then you hit your soul and it's like, man, it's not as good as I thought it was. You just kind of want to give up, throw in the towel. Or we could start pretending and saying, you know what, even though I know who I really am, I'm going to portray myself as someone that I'm not so that these people will still like me, so that I could keep this church job, so I won't get kicked out of worship team, right? I'm just going to start pretending. I'm going to just put on a mask on Sunday. And you know what? Everyone else is doing that too, so I might as well do that. Or we could start hiding. We could start removing ourselves, being less authentic, putting on a plastic smile. But there's another way. We know that We all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. I love the connection between being known and love. There's some great theologians who have thought about this, some great philosophers One of them said, I don't know who to quote, but it's not mine. We are worse than we think we are, but we are more loved than we could ever know. That when we learn to live in this tension, and I've had to do it. I have to do it every time I preach because I'm preaching the words of God. I'm preaching the perfect scripture, and it's coming out of my mouth very imperfect, very flawed. I have to live in that tension. I hope all of our worship team feels the tension that they would know and you would know when you watch them sing that they're not living all of these words and that there's a tension that they have to live in. And that's okay. And, that, and I hope that you recognize that you have to live in tension too. And as you grow in your faith, in a healthy way, you'll see that your heart is more evil than you thought. You'll continue to discover the depravity of your soul, and it will shock you. You'll realize that the things you thought you did 
that were perfectly for the Lord, you examine it closer in your maturity and you'll, you'll be like, man, when I thought I preached that sermon because I loved the Lord and I was single, I still was hoping that one girl would be impressed, right? When I preached that sermon and I thought it was just for the Lord, I wanted a little ego boost at the end of my sermon. I wanted someone to say, good job. And you start looking deeper in your soul and you see, man, everything I do is a mixed bag. There's always some pride. There's always some of myself in there. There's always some evil in there, even when I'm striving for good. But the cool part is that Jesus already knew that part of you. He knows us. And he loves us. I was walking with Liam one day, and I was just talking to him. You know, we were just, I was ergoing him, letting Nina sleep in, uh, walking him around the block. And I say that, and then I also want to say that she woke up three times that night, and I kept sleeping. You see? You see how I did that, right? I was like, I'm a good dad, but actually, I'm a bad dad. Anyways, so I'm walking Liam, and I'm talking to him. And I've seen him every day. And I said, Liam, I know you through and through. I know you better than you know yourself. One day you're going to mess up, and I want you to know that I'm going to be here with you. And I already know that you're going to want to mess up in that way. And when you fall, I'll be there to pick you up. I'm going to know your greatest strengths and your greatest weaknesses, and it's okay, you don't have to impress me. I'm your dad. And as I was saying this to Liam, God just spoke that over me. Wilson, I saw you grow up. I know your every thought. I know your greatest moments and your worst. I know parts of you that you don't even know. But I'm your dad. I'm with you. I'm rooting for you. I love you. You can be safe in showing me your heart and be being known by me. Whoever loves God is known by God. And I wonder if this journey isn't primarily about doing all the things in Scripture, like not sinning and feeding people and adopting an orphan. I I don't think it's primarily about being Scripture. I think it's primarily about that journey where we see the disconnect and we love God more. We say, God, in the greater of disconnects, I need a greater amount of grace and forgiveness in my life. And we know that those who have been forgiven greatly love greatly. Those who have not been forgiven greatly don't love. Let the disconnect grow. And let the cross grow with it. This other book is about that, Gospel-Centered Life. (laughs) It wasn't me. When we feel loved in that disconnect, we get to be honest with ourselves before the Lord and say, God, there's good in me and there's bad in me. And I, I start to get comfortable with that, not in a way of complacency, but I'm okay. I don't have to hide anymore. I don't have to hide from you. I don't need you to think more of me than I am. I don't have to hide from the Lord. And most importantly, I don't have to hide from myself. There's a great freedom there. And also I'm patient. I know that the journey between my head, I am a child of God, and my heart, 
me embodying that, that's not a day. That's not Amazon Prime. That's not Netflix Instant Video. That's not a microwave. That is this lifetime and the rest of eternity. This simple phrase of Jesus loves you is this lifetime and the rest of eternity. Don't try to arrive. Just keep walking because it's going to be forever. Are you patient enough for that? Or are you just trying to like, get there so you can be proud of yourself? Most of the most basic, fundamental tenets of our faith are lifetime journeys. And it's beautiful. And we love God more in it. And, and we need to embrace that tension and to say, hey, when I see more breaks, that's when I grow. When I see no breaks between what I know and my heart, that's when I'm a Pharisee and when I stop growing. You know, it's funny to me because some of us in this room have grown in our faith and we're in this adolescent phase where we come to church and we're like, man, Wilson or whoever's preaching has nothing left to say to me. I've heard it all. We go to a small group and we're like, I know, I know this passage. I'm just going to teach everyone here. And it's funny to me because the people who really receive and who have spoken about my sermons and have humbled me deeply have been the most mature people in this room. The people I don't deserve to preach to, the people I'm humbled that they sit here on Sundays, the people that I look up to in my faith, like my parents, will, my mom will record her reflection of my sermons on a tape and send it to me. And it's not like, good job, Wilson. It's like, you penetrated my soul with, your, with the scriptures. And she's seen everything. <laughs> Ken Chang will stand up and take a photo of a slide. Dr. Ken. Chrissy sat with me at coffee and said, you say these truths so casually and it penetrates my heart and I look around to wonder if anyone else hears it. You know, Jonathan, Paul, um, Ken Ye, who had pastored me when I was in junior high, have all said things like that. And you know why? It's not because I'm a great preacher. It's because they, they get this. They get that because they know something doesn't mean they don't have a thousand miles to build out. So they come to church most days wanting to learn. And, and they come and they say, Wilson, it's not about you. I know that. I know that they're not listening because they think I'm more spiritual or because I deserve to pastor them or because I know scripture better. They're here listening because it's God's word. And they're submitting themselves to that. And, and, and the people that I hear who say all the other stuff are young adults who walk with God for three years or six years, who read the Bible a couple of times, who read a commentary. And you know what? I get it. Like, I was there too. But we need to move away from that, brothers and sisters. We really do. Don't get stuck there. I had this little phrase I had up. It said, sit down with Jesus and be humble. It comes from this rap song, <laughs> Christian rap song. Uh, knowledge, love builds up. We allow others and our church to be both good and bad, to be in tension, to be on journey. When we do that first part well, we know because we stop judging 
and we allow each other to be good and bad. We stop judging and we, we don't say she's just crazy. We don't say she just doesn't know God. We don't say she's, she's just label send away. We say we're all, me and you are both good and bad and we're all on this journey and that's okay. And I get to receive all of you and sit with all of you instead of being dismissive. And our church, we get to say our church is both good and bad. And that's okay too. And we can grow, and we can still fall in love and be committed. And we can say, and we can be okay. We don't have to say, oh, we're all bad. Our church is all bad. And guess what? We don't have to say our church is all good either because it's not. You know what scares me is when someone comes into um, our church and they just like, man, Wilson, you are the most amazing pastor in the world. And I'm like, oh, crap, I, that's a long way to fall, you know? And then the next sermon, I confess a sin to just kind of break that down a little bit. I embrace that I'm a flawed leader. I embrace that. When people ask me to share who I am, that's one of the things I shared. I embrace my flaws. I put it in front of you. But I also embrace the leadership that God's given me. And I want to do that well also. And I embrace our church in the flaws and the good. I wonder if you can do that. And the last thing is, man, when you're able to do that first part well, when you're able to be okay with the good and bad of your own soul and find God's grace and forgiveness there and love him more because of it and be known there, we're able to build others up. We're able to build the church up in the tension instead of judging or complaining. A lot of people, some people, have been complaining instead of building up. And I think that doesn't help us. If, you, if you're one of the be- most beautiful parts of doing this well is that you're a builder instead of a complainer and, and someone who judges. Someone who complains, judges, gossips, what they do is they devalue. They look at a community, they look at a person, and they say, you're not valuable. That's what they mean at the end of everything that they point at. This isn't as good as you think it is. But someone who builds up because they love says, you are valuable. You know, I have a brother that we keep each other accountable, and that's what we do. We say, you are valuable. In your weakness, in your sin, you have value. We say that all the time to each other. And I wonder if that's the posture of our soul when we think about Renew. I want to build this church up and give it value. I wonder if that's the posture as we come before each other to say, I want to build you up in your tension, in your good and bad. I'm going to give you value because God gives you value. That that would be that would be how we know that we've seen this disconnect. And instead of hiding and feeling shame and condemnation, instead of being inflated, it's hard to reside in the disconnect. It's so hard. It's easy to go to our heart and say, we're, we're just, we're going to condemn ourselves. It's so easy to go to our head and say, I'm great. When we reside in that disconnect well, we're able to build others up. We're able to experience love there. 
You know, when I think about Jesus, that's what the cross looks like, right? He forgives us of our sin. When we take the wine um, and we partake in the bread today, we're saying, man, God, you held this tension of our sin, our evil hearts on one hand. You inserted love that you would die and sacrifice for us. And on the other hand, you held truth. You held all good, all bad, and you, fit, and you loved us in between that. You forgave us for our sin. And you gave us your righteousness. And in the journey, you give us yourself. I am with you always. I hope that as we take communion today, that that's what we would reflect on. Jesus is willing to hold all of us on the cross. And when we are willing to receive his life in that, we can find, we can be in that tension. God, we come to you this morning and some of us ask for forgiveness, that we have become prideful and arrogant and unteachable. I pray that in this moment, you would help us to see the distance between what we know and who we are, but to see it in a way of love and grace and forgiveness. And for others of us this morning, we've given up. We barely got out of bed to get here. We, didn't, we felt like we didn't deserve to walk through the doors. Maybe we gave the imperfect people sign a hug, you know, And there's hiding and there's shame. And you're saying to us, hey, I'm, it's okay. I drew all the sinners out from hiding. Jesus says, I drew all the prostitutes, all the sinners out. Because I said, it's okay. I'm going to meet you there. I'm going to forgive you there. I'm going to love you there. I don't know whether you come today as a saint or a sinner but I know that we all need more tension and more of Jesus in our lives. Will we just come to him right now and speak to him? Before the first song starts out, I just want to give us a couple minutes uh, to take communion. Communion's a big deal. Don't skip it. It brings tangible, a tangible experience of the gospel into our lives. It's at communion we can, fa- we can face that tension and feel safe in it. It's at the cross we can know that we are sinners, but we are loved. I wanted to just kind of carve out more space for this. And so 
Could we just all stand together? If you're a believer, I'm just going to bless our communion. We're just going to take it together as we go into the first song, okay? God, today we receive your grace again. We receive communion, and we ask that you would open our eyes, open our ears to your gospel. We need you, God. All of us need you. In Jesus' name. There's uh, three tables in the back, and we'd love for you to uh, go back there and participate.